Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Happy New Year, True Crime Army. So listen, if you're new here, you probably want to know why I made this show. And it is simply for one reason. As a veteran who has served for over a decade, I wanted to remind everyone to remain vigilant regardless of your surroundings. Don't trust anyone with your kids. Keep a cautious ear to the ground wherever you go. And if your instinct is telling you something is off, believe it. With that, go ahead and subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And today I have a huge announcement. After two years of doing a bi-weekly show, Military Murder will now be a weekly show. Yes! I know, I cannot believe those words are coming out of my mouth. But it's official. I am back to a weekly show. So if you've missed the show and got kind of behind because it wasn't released as often as other shows, make room in your ears because I'm officially back. I am more excited than you are. Many of you have been clamoring for a long time now for more episodes. And this year I deliver. All right, that's enough of that. If you're listening to today's episode, you are eager to learn more about Israel Keys. And as I close out this mini series, you may be even more shocked than in any other part of Israel Keys' story. Join me today as I wrap up the life of Israel Keys, his other crimes, and some unsolved cases that may be connected to Israel Keys himself, but we'll never really know. Now, let's dig in. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid freaking TV special or, you know, you know how it is nowadays, like with all this true crime bullshit that people are obsessed with. And that's, uh, I'm not even so concerned at this point. about. In listening to that soundbite of Israel Keys, it's a little bit comical to say the least, considering that there are books, documentaries, and now podcasts about this guy. But I guess this true crime bullshit? That's how life goes. As we close out Israel Keys, and I hope to never think of this guy ever again, I want to start with some good news before getting to the bad news. On December 12th, 2012, the two Texas police officers who were key to taking down Israel Keys, if you remember, just to jot your memory, those cops were Brian Henry, who found the car at the hotel, and Stephen Rayburn, who put out the bolo. Well, these two men were honored for being badasses. According to the book, Devil in the Darkness, both officers also received a special letter of recognition from the chief of police of Anchorage. And I wanted to put that part up front because these men quite literally stopped, presumably one of the scariest serial killers of our time. And all because they were alert to a bolo. And let's not even talk about how Henry randomly found a white Ford Focus parked in a motel parking lot. Like, what are the freaking odds? Anyway, remain vigilant. So, take a listen. I do want to continue to cooperate. Um, I'm having some issues as far as... uh, It's 
is somewhat of an unrealistic expectation on my part, but I was thinking there might be a way to disclose all this information to you and to the FBI. And to some way ensure, somehow ensure that uh, we could work out some sort of agreement that, you know, I give you all the answers on these cases and, and uh, you know, families get closure and you find as many, as many of them as possible and, um, and in return for that, you know, I, you know, I don't plan on being around a whole lot longer, but a really big concern to me is, um, you know, my kid's going to be around. I, I don't want her to, like, type my name in the computer and have it pop up. Like, you know. That was Israel Keys during one of his many interviews. And during his time in prison, he always toyed with the FBI, talking about all the stories he had, but he never really wanted to open up. So the FBI had to put together their own timeline to basically reverse engineer where Keyes had traveled and if any people had gone missing while he was in that area. And when the FBI put together a timeline of Keyes' most frequented states, the list consisted of 26 of the 50 U.S. states, which is insane. After Keyes' arrest, Keyes would talk on and off about things he did, but he was over the entire thing. Jail just wasn't for him. And with that, Israel Keyes had a plan. On May 23, 2012, amid Keyes' shenanigans that he didn't want media attention, he did something that could have gotten him noticed. On that Wednesday, Keyes had a federal hearing. His defense attorney was trying to postpone the trial date. At the hearing in the courtroom, Keyes was surrounded by eight guards. The courtroom had a handful of U.S. Marshals lined up on the back wall. FBI agents sat in the gallery. All the while, Israel Keyes wore shackles, and handcuffs with a belly chain. And it was during this hearing that Keyes made a run for it. You see, he had been using the pencils the guards gave him to turn them into lock pins. He would use his teeth to bite them down to size so they were the perfect tool to release his restraints. And while he had been transported from the jail to the courthouse, he had basically been jimmying his cuffs and shackles. By the time he arrived in that courtroom, his restraints were more or less there just for show. Because unbeknownst to everyone else, they were already unlocked. So, how did he keep them from opening, you might ask? Well, he had been storing up the plastic wrap where they had been giving him his lunch sandwiches in. Yup, Israel Keys used saran wrap. During the hearing at once, Keys shook off his restraints, leaped over the railing separating the people participating in the court and the observers, and he sprinted towards the door. In the book, American Predator, the thing about this is that as you imagine it in your head, it's loud and rowdy, but in actuality, Keyes was described as stealthy. He leaped over the seats, no one really being able to stop the man. And while not one person could physically take him down, it took the power of a taser to finally stop Israel Keyes and keep him from quite literally escaping federal detention. All the while, his attorney and the judge watched in absolute horror. I mean, in reality, did he think he was going to get away? Maybe not. But this clown that didn't want a circus was surely creating one anyway. After this, Keyes' prison cell was searched. They found unmailed letters to his brother where Keyes admitted to being a serial killer and said things like, quote, they can't convict a dead man. They also found other writings where Keyes also wrote of six victims, 
three of which were later identified as Samantha Koenig and the Couriers. Well, after this escape attempt, security got even stricter. And on September 11th, the Alaska Department of Corrections found Keyes guilty of, quote, possessing an object which had been modified to act as a handcuff key, end quote. According to the book Devil in the Darkness, Keyes was sentenced to 60 days of punitive segregation, but 45 of those days were suspended. So in essence, Keyes got a two-week sentence. The sentence began on November 28th, but even segregation couldn't save this guy. Because on December 2nd, 2012, just 10 months after he had killed Samantha Koenig, Israel Keyes was found dead in his prison cell. Israel Keyes had warned of a possible suicide. His ex-girlfriend Tammy was concerned that he was actually going to do it. And in fact, even the prison feared that Keyes would take his life, which is why they put him on suicide watch months prior to his suicide. Suicide watch included giving this guy a special gown and a suicide blanket. But during that time, Israel Keyes met with the prison psychiatrist and was eventually removed from the suicide watch list. Many of the FBI agents directly interviewing Keyes and who had built a relationship with him and they were overseeing the case, they had warned the guards to be extra careful to not give the man anything, anything that he could use to escape or injure himself. But somehow, this inmate in isolation who now wore red to indicate he was a danger to society not just outside of prison, but also inside the prison walls. Well, they had given him razors, razors. They had given him razors to use to shave his face. The thing is that a smarty pants like Keys, well, he began to remove the blade from the handle. And voila, now you had an extremely dangerous inmate with a deadly weapon. When they found Keys' dead body, they determined that Keys had killed himself using a razor blade and a noose. On the wall next to his bed, Keyes drew 11 skulls on the wall in his own blood. Underneath one of the skulls, it read, we are one. In addition to the skulls, there was another picture. It was a circle. Inside the circle, there was a star. And inside the star, there was like a lamb with straight horns. Also on the wall, written in blood, was one word, Belize. When they discovered Keyes' body, they discovered that under his body, there was a letter written by Keyes, but soaked in blood. It took a lot of time for them to dry out the letter and attempt to make any sense of the writing, but apparently there was no rhyme or reason to the letter. I will read this letter in a bonus episode if anyone's interested, in case you are just curious about what a serial killer rambles about. After his death, an investigation was conducted, and it was determined that on the night that Keyes died, he visited the law library at 7 p.m. He was there for two hours and then returned to his solo cell at 9 p.m. Keys, it's unclear if he already had his weapons prepared or not, but he had placed the razor blade along the long end of a pencil. And with that, he slit his left wrist. This occurred between 10.12 and 10.24 p.m. Keys then used two cups and milk cartons to catch the blood so as to not create a bloody, noticeable mess on the floor. Then I guess he scrawled on the wall in his own blood. And then he tied a noose around his neck and laid on his stomach where he tied the other end of the noose to his foot as it was pulled up to his butt. So basically what this did was prevent him from surviving because as he lost consciousness, his leg would naturally try to fall flat, which would then tighten the noose around his neck. That very same day that they found Keyes' body, the feds held a press conference to tell the public about Israel Keyes. 
Now that the man was dead, there was no need in keeping his crimes or their connection a secret. In fact, now, without keys, they would need the public's help to solve any unsolved cases possibly connected to keys. At his funeral, which only some of his family attended, the same pastor that married Keyes' sister, the one who, if you remember from my last episode, Keyes had an earlier negative interaction with, well, this pastor gave somewhat of a eulogy. Pastor Gardner in brief said, Israel Keyes is in hell. Rest there where you belong. Unfortunately, not only did Keyes take his victims with him in his mind, but he changed the lives of the victims' families and of his very own family. When Keyes was arrested, he didn't just have his daughter to consider. Keyes had become a father figure to Tammy's older son. Sadly, when Keyes was arrested, that stepson he had, well, Keyes' arrest hit that young boy hard. And the news of Keyes' death hit this young man even harder. In fact, the year after Keyes' suicide, Tammy's son, Keaton, 20 years old at the time, he chose to complete death by suicide. It was truly tragic. Before I get into any unsolved murders that Keyes may be connected to, let me tell you about some other crimes that Keyes admitted to during his FBI interrogations. I do want to point out that in putting their timeline together, the FBI determined that there was a telltale sign of when Keyes was committing a crime. Whenever he was about to commit a crime, he turned his cell phone off and took the battery out. Keyes himself admitted to doing this. And this then created kind of a calling card via Keyes' cell phone records. During his interrogation, Keyes admitted to one of his very first personal crimes. He told authorities that it was either 1996 or 1997, but after his family moved to Oregon, Keyes visited a beach near the Deschutes River. At the river, he hid in the woods wearing just swim trunks, waiting for the perfect victim. And that's when he saw a couple of young kids floating down the river in inner tubes. A girl in the back had been separated from her friends, and she was floating all by herself. When Keyes, a teenager himself, 18, 19 years old, emerged from the woods and snatched the girl right out of the water, inner tube and all, the victim was also a teenager. Keyes then took the girl into a bathroom where he tied her up and raped her. Keyes stated that despite the circumstances, the girl was very kind to him and actually tried to convince him that he was so good looking that he didn't have to go through with it. She might actually consider dating him under different circumstances. The victim somehow convinced Keyes to let her go. And she said she would never tell a soul. And Keyes, after raping the young girl, well, he let her go. The girl never reported it that anyone knows of. And the FBI would later analyze this and wonder if Keyes was stunned by the girl's lack of fear, which really seemed to fuel his need to kill. After admitting to this kidnapping and rape, Keyes told authorities that after he let her go, he felt great regret. Not regret that he kidnapped her and raped her, but regret that he let her live. Keyes also confessed to that one time in the military when he raped an exchange student while he was in Tel Aviv. In that case, it appeared that he met the exchange student, they hit it off, and she told him where she lived, and she may have invited him back to her room. Keyes went back to the room with the girl, and they were hanging out, and then he said he raped her. He actually called it an outrage rape. Then there was a time that Keyes almost committed a quadruple murder. Yup, Keyes admitted to a time in the spring of 2011 where he was eager to kill. So he rode his bike down to a park in Anchorage. It was 10 p.m. He was trying to target some lovers in a car. His plan was to snipe them out. He wanted to test out his silencer. So he's sitting in the woods like a creep. 
He had his sights set and was ready to pop the couple when in drove a police cruiser. The cop got out and went to talk to the couple in the car. Keys, at this point, still hiding in the woods, had a decision to make. Should he pop all of them and call it a night? Sure, he thought to himself, why not? But then, as he prepared, suddenly another police cruiser came bopping along. At that point, Keys decided it was too dangerous to kill two cops and two civilians. So he aborted the plan and left. After this, Keys got himself a police scanner so that he knew exactly what cops were up to when he was committing his crimes. And you might recall that he was wearing his police scanner in his ear when he abducted Samantha. In addition to confessing to rapes and the times he wanted to kill, Keys confessed to bank robberies and arson. One bank robbery he admitted to was a bank robbery in Tupper Lake, New York on April 13, 2009. Police were able to pull the footage for the community bank bank robbery, and it showed a man covered from head to toe with a scully wearing a zip-up hoodie carrying a gun. The man was wearing sunglasses, he had a beard and a mustache, but it was clear as day like glue-on facial hair. In discussing this Tupper Lake bank robbery, Keyes admitted that he was only going to approach one teller, but when he walked inside and saw just a few people, he stuck up the entire bank branch, making all the tellers lay on the ground while he demanded money. Once he robbed the Tupper Lake bank, the case remained unsolved, even though the police made that video footage available to the public almost immediately. And the thing is that they would never get any help from the public because Israel Keyes was only in town for the bank robbery. And then he left. On this trip is where Israel Keyes would eventually conceal the kill kit in Vermont, the same kill kit he used on his hit on the couriers a few years later. The thing about these bank robberies is that that's how Israel Keyes funded his entire travel. In listening to this miniseries, did you ever wonder how Israel Keyes could afford so much damn travel? It's not like he was flying short distances. This man was flying from Alaska to the lower 48, renting a car everywhere he went and booking hotels. Well, now you know. And remember that one time he disappeared from his mom's house for 24 hours and then showed up with a whopping $900 in cash? Oh, and remember that time when he was stopped by the Texas police and arrested and they found rolled up marked money in his car? Yup, the result of bank robbery. So not only was Israel Keys a serial killer, he was a full-on bank robber. So let's go back to the Tupper Lake robbery. Police are talking to Israel Keys and they pull up this video footage from the robbery. And during their interrogation, they all kind of chuckle a little bit at how ridiculous Keys' getup is. They ask Keys if that was real human hair, you know, because he had that mustache and like the goatee slash beard. And Keys is like, yeah, that is human hair. And the police got a little bit quiet. They were like, how does someone go about getting human hair nowadays? And Keys simply said, you take it. Anything is free if you just take it. I mean, Israel Keys is insane. And remember, this is a guy who is an eligible bachelor, single dad, attending back to school night to meet with his daughter's teacher. Woof. Now, this human hair comment leads me to another bank robbery. This one was in Azle, Texas, and this was around the time that Keyes disappeared from his mom's house in February of 2012, right after Samantha's murder. But before I tell you about the bank robbery, let me tell you about the arson that occurred right before the bank robbery that served as a decoy. Okay, so it's Alito, Texas, February 16th, 2012. 
Keyes found a 3,500 square foot house. It was way out of town and Keyes was trying to draw away police presence in all the surrounding small towns so that he can perform his hit on the bank. The house was located at 201 East Terrace Court and Keyes described that the house was a mess. He actually said it was a fire hazard waiting to happen. So Keyes set fire to this humongous house and the adjacent outhouse. But before setting it ablaze, he ransacked it for valuables. Then after he set fire to the place, he drove a distance away and watched as it went up in flames. The thing was that it was a huge fire, bigger than he thought it was going to be. So big, in fact, that it scared Keyes and he quickly got in his car and drove away so as to not be suspicious. Then Keyes drove just 30 minutes from the fire to Azel, Texas, where he robbed the National Bank of Texas of a whopping $10,000. During the robbery, he wore a disguise, a white hard hat over shoulder length, stringy, curly hair. He also wore a mask like the ones that we used to wear during COVID. Now, it's this curly, stringy hair where I want to stop to discuss an unsolved murder that may be connected to Israel Keys. You see, Keys did not have long hair in February of 2012. And remember when he once told cops that he could take human hair whenever he wanted? Well, while many believe that Samantha Koenig was Israel Keys's last victim, there is a school of thought that believes otherwise. You see, James Jimmy Tidwell went missing in Longview, Texas on February 15th, 2012. Does that date ring a bell? Remember when Keyes met up with his family on February 15th on the other side of the mall after being MIA for 24 hours? And remember the mud splatter on his rental? Anyway, 58-year-old Jimmy Tidwell was an electrician and he had worked the night shift on Valentine's Day. He left work at 5.30 a.m. on the 15th. He was supposed to be heading home, presumably to sleep, but he never made it home. Instead, after he was reported missing, his white Ford truck was found five miles from his house. Jimmy was married with two adult kids. He worked for his company for a decade. Jimmy's vehicle didn't reveal any clues as to what happened to Jimmy. His glasses were on the front seat, but his ID, phone, wallet, all gone. His car didn't have any unknown DNA. And the kicker? Listen here, guys. Jimmy wore a white hard hat for work, similar to the one Keyes wore during the Azzle bank robbery the following day. And get this, Jimmy had long, stringy, curly hair. What in the world? During Keyes' interrogation about the Azzle bank robbery, Keyes said he wasn't wearing a wig. So was it possible that Israel Keyes had abducted Jimmy Tidwell, done unthinkable things to him, taken his hair and his hard hat and used it in a bank robbery the very next day, only 180 miles away? Yep, it's possible, especially considering from when he picked up his rental to when he returned it, the car, the rental car, had close to a whopping 3,000 miles on it. Now, let's think about it. Israel Keys picked up the rental in New Orleans. He drove to Dallas, Texas to visit his family and then drove to Houston to the airport. A quick Google map shows that from New Orleans to Dallas to Houston is only 750 miles. So what did Keyes do to put that extra 2,200 miles on the rental? After Keyes died, the FBI put their heads together and they have determined that Keyes likely killed 11 victims. 
Here's an audio snippet by FBI Special Agent Jolene Godin. We believe there are 11 victims total, and that is uh, based primarily on what Keith told us. He he was evasive, um, like you mentioned. He was very evasive at times during interviews, and he told us um, when we tried to, to pin him down on a number, he would say it was less than 12. But then there were things that he would say um, that led us to believe that by less than 12, he simply meant 11. And so he, he was quick to correct us in interviews if we had something wrong. So there were several times where we just threw out statements like, you are 11 victims or things like that, and he didn't correct us. So based on that and, and some just additional things that he said, we believe the number is 11. So the FBI thinks that Israel Keys has 11 likely victims. But the question is, are there more or are there less? Let me tell you about some mysterious unsolved murders that occurred in Israel Keyes' town when he was just a teenager. Julie Harris was a 12-year-old double amputee who went missing from Colville, Washington in 1996, when Keyes was still living there. Julie was special because she was famous. She was a gold medalist for the Special Olympics in the sport of downhill skiing. Well, on March 3, 1996, Julie left her house and was never seen alive again. Authorities searched and searched and searched. And a month after her disappearance, Julie's prosthetic feet were discovered by the river. And then a year later in 1997, Julie's remains were found three miles from her house in the woods. And then there was a double murder of a mother and daughter. In June of 1997, police responded to the scene of a fire at a trailer in Coville, Washington. Once the fire was put out, authorities discovered the remains of Marlene Emerson. The fire was a result of arson. The thing was that while Marlene was found dead inside the trailer, her 12-year-old daughter was nowhere to be found. 12-year-old Casey Emerson became a missing person until her remains were found the following year in 98 in the woods near the Kettle Falls, 13 miles from Colville. The thing is that these three murders are still unsolved today, but the mysterious murders in Colville surprisingly stopped after Keyes left in 97. During his confessions, Keyes never confessed to these Colville murders, but he did say that he would occasionally start arsons to cover up murders. And he once admitted that the first arson he ever committed was the arson of a trailer. While Keyes never gave names, he did confess that there were at least four bodies in Washington state. There was a double murder and then two separate murders that happened close in time. He admitted that two of them he had murdered right after he left the military between summer of 01 and 2005, and the pair that he killed, he said, had been together similar to the couriers. I mean, clearly, Keyes knew exactly who they were and when he killed them, but he was toying with the FBI at this point, I imagine. And then he said that there were two more Washington victims that were not together killed in different attacks. Those occurred from summer of 2005 through 2006. Now, Keyes admitted that two of the four Washington bodies had been disposed of in Lake Crescent using a boat he had purchased. I know the FBI searched the boat, but I didn't go down that rabbit hole because then this miniseries would turn into a gazillion episodes. In trying to find any unsolved double murders in Washington, police found something that appeared to match where Keyes would have been at the time of this double murder. And when they checked Keyes' cell phone records during the time of the unsolved double murder, the telltale sign was there. During the time of the murders, Israel Key's phone was off and there was a dark spot in his cell phone record. The double murder occurred in July of 2006 on a hiking trail in Washington. The victims were 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her 27-year-old daughter, Susanna Stoden. 
They had been hiking the Pinnacle Lake Trail in Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. They had initially planned to hike on Mount Pilchek, but they must have changed their mind last minute, which cost them their lives. At roughly 2.30 p.m., a couple hiking the Pinnacle Trail found the mother-daughter duo hunched over and dead. They were two miles from the trailhead. They had each been shot once in the head with a 22, and then it appeared that their bodies were posed. They were no longer on the trail, but their bodies weren't hidden. They both had backpacks with cell phones and wallets, and none of their belongings had been robbed. This case stumped everyone. They couldn't figure out who killed these women, and the case remains unsolved today. And well, Keyes' phone was blacked out when these two women were murdered. And guess what? The hiking trail was roughly 180 miles from where Keyes lived in Nia Bay when the women were murdered. Keyes alluded to a victim in New York. He said, there's one in New York, but he wouldn't give a name. In a press release, authorities said that Keyes admitted to kidnapping a woman on April 9th, 2009 from an East Coast state, transporting her through several states to upstate New York, where he buried her body near Tupper Lake. When authorities looked at victims' names found on Israel Keyes' computer, there was the name of a missing person on the East Coast. The name was Deborah Feldman. When authorities asked Keyes about Deborah, he said he didn't want to talk about it. So who is Deborah Feldman? 48-year-old Deborah Feldman was a sex worker from Hackensack, New Jersey, who went missing on April 8, 2009. Sadly, her body has never been found. After Keyes' death, the FBI reported that they believed that Keyes was responsible for Deborah's disappearance. And the news came as a shock, but also as a relief to her estranged husband, and Deborah's son, who always wondered what happened to his mother. To this day, Deborah's body has never been found. And but for alluding to a victim in the East Coast on the same day-ish that Deborah went missing, Keyes didn't reveal anything else. And then there was a Google search on Israel Keyes' computer. The Google search was Missing Person, Indiana, June 2011. This Google search clearly intrigued the FBI, and when investigators did their own Google search, they found a missing co-ed, 20-year-old Indiana University student Lauren Spear, who went missing from Bloomington, Indiana on June 3, 2011. Side note, IU Bloomington is my law school alma mater, so in researching Lauren's case, it was bone-chilling to know I have frequented the very same bar that Lauren did before she went missing. And I graduated from IU in 2009, so just two years before Lauren went missing. And the thing about this Google search on Israel Keyes' computer is that he confessed that he traveled to Indiana staying with his mom during the summer of 2011. In fact, he was on his way to kill the couriers when he stopped by his mom's house. And remember, the couriers went missing on June 8th. That's only five days after Lauren went missing. And the FBI confirmed Keyes' Indiana travel when they caught Israel's rental car going through three toll booths in Indiana in June of 2011. Again, when the FBI brought up Lawrence Spears to Keyes, he simply laughed and said, quote, that's how hard it's going to be for you guys to figure it out, end quote. So what happened to Lauren Spears? On June 3rd, 2011, Lauren texted her boyfriend and told him she was heading to bed. 
But instead of heading to bed, she went out with some friends. Using a fake ID because she was only 20 years old at the time, Lauren went to Kilroy's sports bar. While there with some friends, she drank a little too much and upon leaving, she forgot her shoes and her cell phone. Lauren was then escorted back to her apartment by a friend, Corey Rossman. This is caught on surveillance video, in addition to Lauren being so drunk that she tripped and fell on her way home. Once they arrived to Lauren's apartment, there was a confrontation between people who knew Lauren and the man she was with. Presumably, they thought he was trying to take advantage of a drunk Lauren. A few punches were exchanged, and eventually, Lauren headed back to Corey's apartment with him, which was about a five-minute walk from her apartment complex. Back at Corey's place, his roommate was up studying, and the roommate put Corey to bed after Corey threw up. The roommate then told Lauren to sleep on the couch, but she refused and went to one of Corey's neighbor's apartments instead. That person said that Lauren stayed there for a little bit and then walked out of the apartment, presumably on her way back to her own apartment. It was now 4.30 in the morning. When this witness looked out, the last time he saw Lauren, she was on the intersection of 11th Street and College Avenue. The next morning after attempting to make contact, Lauren's boyfriend reported her missing. And then all of the men connected to Lauren stopped cooperating. When Lauren went missing, she was 4 foot 11 inches tall. She weighed in at 95 pounds. She wasn't wearing shoes and she was without a cell phone. Sadly, Lauren's family is still waiting for answers. And you have to remember, Lauren went missing on June 3rd. So it's not a typical packed college campus at this point. Most students were home on summer break. So I imagine the streets were pretty desolate when she went missing. And on top of that, it was 4.30 in the morning. There are so many cases like this, missing people around the country, and the FBI has to comb through and figure out if Israel Keys could be connected to any of those disappearances. The crazy thing is that Israel Keys talked a big game, but he did admit that while initially he didn't want fame, towards the tail end of it, he craved it. He constantly Googled the missing people's names to see what was being said in the media. In the end, Israel Keyes mocked BTK for apologizing for what he did when his case went to court. And I believe that Keyes didn't want to apologize, but he also didn't want his daughter to see him not apologizing. So he took his own way out. One of the things I haven't covered and I won't be covering because I didn't dig too much into it, but when authorities searched that house that Keyes owned in upstate New York, they added a new classification to Keyes' investigation, and that category was terrorism. The funny, not-so-funny thing about this serial killer Israel Keyes is that he talked a big game, once saying, well, I'll let you hear it for yourself. Right, my concern, the problem is nowadays, uh, the more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid freaking TV special or, you know, you know how it is nowadays, like with all this true crime bullshit that people are obsessed with. And that's, uh, I'm not even so concerned at this point about, uh, you know, because so far I feel like we have been able to work within the guidelines of what we both said we would. Uh, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I am concerned about that, about someone connecting the dots on this. And uh... The truth of the matter is, Keyes was going to be a topic of true crime stuff, whether he took his life or not. But after his death, once they released the videos of his interview, it left too much to the imagination. Another crazy part about Keyes after he got caught was his lack of remorse. 
In fact, during his confession, he once said his greatest regret in life was not killing more people while he had the chance. Of his victims, Israel Keys called them his people and claimed that they belonged to him. Thank you all so much for joining me for the conclusion of this four-part mini-series. And thank you for joining me for another amazing year. I am so excited for this year going back to my roots of a weekly podcast. If you're interested in supporting the show, consider joining me on Patreon or Apple Premium, where you will have access to close to 40 full-length bonus episodes. 40! My main resources for this mini-series were two books. First was J.T. Hunter's Devil in the Darkness, And second was Maureen Callahan's book, American Predator. I also relied heavily on the FBI.gov website, which included extensive write-ups and videos of Keyes' confession. Also, be sure to check out True Crime Bullshit, the podcast that discusses all things Israel Keyes. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions. This month's executive producers are Falcon 13, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Nicole, and Myrtle. My newest associate producer is Bailey, And my newest assistant producers are Debbie, Candice, Jacqueline, and Amber. Thank you guys so much for joining my Patreon. The music was created by TyUps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.